This episode is all about XALD. Hello and welcome to another episode of the JRMD podcast. It's always a gift when we accept two papers around the same condition close together. So when that happened at the end of 2020, and both papers had a common author, this podcast was crying out to be made. I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Stephen Kemp, a biochemist at Emma Children's Hospital in Amsterdam, and Dr. Eric Malik from the Division of Child Neurology at the New York Presbyterian Hospital to discuss their recent papers on X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy. Um, hello, Stephen and Eric. Hi, James. Hi, it's nice to be here. So, Thank you both for making the time for this, especially at such short notice. We're obviously discussing your papers on model systems in ALD and the new recommendations around the timing of neuroimaging in boys at risk of developing childhood cerebral adrenal leukodystrophy. Um, could we begin perhaps with the basics, with a brief overview of X-linked ALD? So XALD is a disease characterized by patients who have a mutation in the ABCD1 gene that leads to the inability to break down very long chain fatty acids. Those fatty acids build up in multiple tissues, most notably in the adrenal glands and in the central nervous system. And it gives rise to three forms of the disease, adrenal insufficiency, which half of the children develop before the age of 10, childhood cerebral adrenal dystrophy. Um, about 35 to 40% of boys will develop it before the age of 12. And then adrenal myelomeropathy, which is more of the adult onset version of the disease where patients develop walking through difficulty, spasticity, and eventually end up wheelchair bound later in life. So those are the three major phenotypes in ALD. So when we're trying to understand rare disease, model systems can obviously be very helpful. Stephen, your team have written a description of the evolution of such systems in XALD. Uh, could you briefly describe what's known? Um, yeah, let me start out with the word evolution. The word evolution may make you think that these models evolved in time, but they didn't. It more reflects the broad range of ALD models that we have, uh, which range from yeast to even the simple Z. And I need to stress that the simple Z was not generated. It was <laughs> diagnosed in a zoo. Uh, it was, it was a, a simple Z that started showing neurological signs and symptoms. And I don't know how, but eventually it ended up at the Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore. And there it was diagnosed as having uh, cerebral ALD. And the simple Z was 11 years old. And it's bizarre because it basically has the same disease onset as young boys with ALD. And I think, but so what, yeah, we have from yeast to plants and everything in between. And I think that each model contributes to certain aspects of the disease. For our understanding of the basic biochemistry of ALD and the development of diagnostic tests, we, yeast and human skin cells or fibroblasts have been very important. Already in the 80s and 90s, uh, these, these model systems were used to understand the biochemistry of LD, this, the buildup of these fatty acids. And that is caused by a deficiency in the transport of these fatty acids into an organelle in the cell, which is called the peroxisome. And you can measure the activity of this breakdown in these cells. And that led to diagnostic testing. Uh, so you can test it by the measuring the fatty acids, but you can also test it by the uh, the breakdown capacity in these cells. And then uh, we have a zebrafish, a fruit fly, um, and C. elegans. And yeah, I won't go into all these 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 model systems, but uh, I think the zebrafish is a really interesting one because it's, it seems to really nicely model ALD 
And what's important that these fish, they show a phenotype fairly early, early on in life that you can visualize with sophisticated imaging. So it's fairly easy to monitor hundreds of, of deficient fish and compare them to a normal fish. So it, and if you can model that, you can follow that, you can track that, then you can also use this for finding new therapeutic compounds that may cure these fish or make, make them swim normal. You didn't mention, uh, or maybe you did mention the, the mouse model briefly. There was a paper accepted not long before yours from a Japanese team that had looked at using, I think, stem cell transplants in a mouse model. Did the mouse model arise by chance? Was that someone's mouse that sort of became funny as it got older, or is that a generated model? No, no, the, uh, the mouse model was uh, generated. Three independent groups in the 90s developed the mouse model, a knockout mouse for ALD. And there was great hope that these mice would eventually develop the, the, brain, the brain disease, but they don't. Uh, so these mice, they developed the spinal cord disease that uh, Eric uh, mentioned. And over the years, people have tried all kinds of, of things to make these mice develop the brain disease, but it doesn't seem to happen. So for studying the brain disease, these mice are not very useful. They have been useful for understanding the disease more better, the biochemistry. They've also been important for testing therapeutic methods. But it also shows the, the limitations of the model because often what we develop in a, in a human skin cell doesn't translate to the mouse. Or if it translates to the mouse, then it doesn't translate to the, to the patients. So we've done studies in mice treating them with very cool compounds that completely normalize the biochemistry but then we did a clinical trial and nothing happened. So, and these are very time consuming assays, very expensive. So we need a, a better model. And um, I think you rather glossed over it just then, but I couldn't help but there's a plant model of sorts for ALD. How can what is essentially a weed help us understand childhood brain disease? Uh, yeah, I'm not so sure if the plant really helps us understanding the brain part of the disease. Um, but what is interesting is that the basic bio biology of, of the peroxisomes, so the, the transport of these fatty acids into peroxisomes, is, is maintained or conserved in these plants. And uh, what these plants are used for is more basic science. So understanding um, how different proteins interact with each other uh, and form complexes that are needed to transport these fatty acids. So that's, that's more where you need to place the plant in, uh, in the model systems. Well, the next time my wife asks me to do the weeding, I'll tell her I'm doing some plant modeling outside. The, um, <laughs> these models, um, they may obviously be invaluable in advancing our understanding of the disease and the development of treatments, but observation of patient cases is important too. Um, Eric, your paper looks to give some clear guidance around MRI surveillance. How did you develop the guidelines you've produced? Sure. So in the era of newborn screening for cerebral ALD, we have this novel approach to disease where we can identify boys at birth prior to symptom onset. And we know that if we are able to treat patients when they have disease on the MRI, but don't yet have clinical symptoms, that's where we maximize our intervention with hematopoietic stem cell transplant and hopefully soon gene therapy. So the way we developed the guidelines is we looked back into the literature for about 30 years and asked the question, 
in the cases that are published, what were the very first signs of disease, either, either radiographic or that very first symptom? And we tried to collect those patients through a meta-analysis and understand what the, dis the distribution of disease actually looks like. And we were able to do that, like I said, through a meta-analysis, answering the questions, what is the age distribution of radiographic or first symptom onset for cerebral ALD? And what types of imaging were used to capture and make that diagnosis? Uh, the findings were refined and presented iteratively over a couple of years at the ALD standard of care meeting in Brooklyn held by the Aiden Jack Seeger Foundation, where the work group originally grew out of. And so in looking at the distribution of the disease, um, understanding where the most cases cluster, uh, we came up with these surveillance guidelines to try to detect early lesion onset in boys identified by newborn screening. So you've got four specific recommendations for the boys that are identified by newborn screening. What are those? Sure. So our, our results indicate that 90% of the cases were diagnosed between the ages of three and 12 years inclusive. But we, we identified a couple cases before the age of three, namely around one and a half to two years old, that were atypical. And then importantly, our meta-analysis didn't identify any cases under the age of one. And that helped inform how we went along and created the surveillance guideline. So our guideline recommends that the first MRI be performed between a year and a year and a half old, really as a baseline to understand what brain structure looks like. We understand that a year later, myelination is going to fill in and the brain is going to mature. So you get the repeat MRI really in the first time period where cerebral disease can occur, although atypically. And then between the ages of 3 and 12, we recommend performing an MRI with contrast every six months. And then after the age of 12, we recommend performing one yearly. And that depends on whether or not you developed a cerebral lesion in that pool of patients between the ages of 3 and 12. So this is obviously rather conditional on children being identified at newborn screening. I'm in the UK. We're sort of half in, half out of Europe, depending on who you ask. We don't offer this screening. So who, who does? Um, in the US, 21 states are now screening for ALD. And it's expected that more states will, uh, will start in the next year. And outside the US, it's just the Netherlands. We are running a pilot that started this year. Well, I'm the project leader of this, of this pilot, and uh, well informed in how this goes on. And we are doing a pilot because there's a difference in screening between the US and the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, it was recommended by the Dutch Health Council to only screen boys for ALD, whereas in the US, it's boys and girls. And that, of course, is a challenge because there is no disease in the world for which only one uh, gender is screened. So we had to develop a method to do that. Uh, because you cannot just do that by looking at the Hilprix cards, because yes, there is marked boy girl, but it's not always complete. So we had to come up with a, an, uh, a tier in our algorithm that enabled this screening or picking up the voice. So we have set it up and uh, we are now testing this. Um, and we, we have been approached by stakeholders from other countries to help them. And so we are, we are helping them with their mobilizing efforts. Uh, for example, in the UK, we are collaborating with uh, Alex TLC, the charity, to help them putting it on the radar. Uh, I'm not sure how this works in other countries. So each country has its own 
way of, of adding diseases to, to a newborn screening program. But uh, whatever we can do to help them, we, we will, of course. Um, I also think that we last year we published our algorithm and all the tests in the algorithm that would enable a boys-only screen. And I'm convinced that whatever country would decide doing a boys-only uh, or boys and girls uh, screening, the, the availability of these methods coming from the labs in the US or our algorithm would enable other countries to make a decision. And so ultimately, we hope that as many countries as possible will start newborn screening for ALD. Obviously, I wanted to ask what your hopes for the future are. It sounds like your hopes, Stephen, are going to be tailored very much around screening. Certainly, you're both very much in the thick of ALD research. I know you were both attending a meeting uh, in the US last week. Where do you see things going next? Are there any treatments on the horizon or other developments beyond the sort of expansion of newborn screening? So where do, where do we see the research going? As I mentioned earlier, newborn screening allows for this prospective approach to disease. And then that way we can, we're afforded the opportunity to redefine natural history. That's it's rare in, in some diseases where we can watch and monitor and then study the disease development in real time in patients. So we have this opportunity to monitor for adrenal disease, the onset of cerebral ALD. And if we can quantify that natural history, that then sets up the ability to uh, institute preventative measures because now we have outcomes and timelines upon which we can map things like clinical trials. I think on the horizon, we're looking for the approval of gene therapy for cerebral ALD, which appears to be successful in halting the cerebral form of disease. The reason behind MRI screening, um, and this is an important point, we do not do stem cell transplant or gene therapy in purely asymptomatic patients. You need to have a cerebral lesion that is not only apparent on the MRI, but enhances, indicating that there's blood-brain barrier breakdown and cerebral inflammation. Because only 30 to 40% of boys develop cerebral ALD. We cannot do a bone marrow transplant in every single kid who's identified. You'll be treating six boys with stem cell transplant who don't need it. And really that's the, that's the, the major point of importance of the MRI surveillance is finding these boys while they're asymptomatic, surveilling their MRIs and then capturing that cerebral lesion and then rapidly getting them to transplant before they develop cerebral symptoms. So that's, that's bone marrow transplant. And then gene therapy that's being developed um, and tested is in the second round of clinical trial is actually an autologous stem cell transplant where the cells are taken from the patient, corrected essentially in a dish, uh, and then given back to the patient, which helps to solve a lot of the, the, the complications that come along with performing an allogeneic stem cell transplant. But what we're looking for in terms of redefining natural history is finding compounds, drugs, medications that we can start early in life in the hopes of preventing the onset of cerebral disease rather than trying to cure the disease, trying to stave it off so that those 30 to 40% of boys who will develop cerebral ALD, we can, we can drop that number to zero and allow all of them to have a relatively normal childhood and, and, and foregoing, uh, hopefully in the future, all of this. Stephen, is there anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, so it's true. 
enabling the predi to predict which boy will develop through LD is important. And now you you have to do with MRI and and the work by Eric and all of us is is helping with that. But we are looking for ways to do this even earlier. So uh, predictive biomarkers is something that we are working on, and it's a rare disease. So a lot of groups collaborate. So we have very close collaborations with most ALD research groups. And the goal is to find um, biomarkers, molecules, uh, preferably in plasma, so in easily accessible material uh, that allow you to predict before the onset of, the, of brain disease, at least before you can see it with an MRI, which boy will develop SUBI-LD, because then preventative bone marrow transplant may, may become an, an option or a possibility. And the earlier you treat, the better the outcome is. So that's something. So we're now talking about boys with, with cerebral LD, but of course we, it's an X-linked disease, but also 80 to 90% of the women develop the spinal cord disease. Uh, all those males that do not develop cerebral LD will develop uh, the spinal cord disease, and there's no treatment for that. So that's another big goal. And in order to... to find a treatment for that, we need to understand the natural history of the disease. Then in this case, I mean the natural history of the, the, the adult form uh, in men and women. Um, so at this moment, there are no sens sensitive clinical endpoints. Uh, the six-minute walk test is, is the most sensitive test that we have so far. And we once calculated that you need a clinical trial with over 200 patients if you have a treatment effect of 20 to 25%. So this is almost impossible. So we're heavily investing on more sensitive clinical endpoints, finding little, little machines that, that people can take home and uh, little devices. That's something that we collaborate on with, also with pharmaceutical companies, because that we have this, the common interest. We, we, want, we need to develop something. And as academic groups, we can't. And uh, the pharmaceutical companies, they also, they can't. So you need, you need to find, uh, you need to talk to each other. And that's something that happens at, the, at our patient meetings, like AOD Connect. And uh, it's something's heavily investigating on this. Um, well, companies, families, patients, scientists, and, and physicians come together and talk about these items. Yeah, and personally, my hope for the future is, of course, is make this LD newborn screening pilot in the Netherlands uh, a success so that somewhere next year we can start screening throughout the Netherlands so that all newborn boys are screened for LD. And something that I also we're working on, which I find very cool, it's also uh, mentioned in the evolution paper, is uh, the development of uh, human brain organoids. We are locked down, so I can't, I can't go to the lab. But uh, Roberto Montero, the first author on the paper, he he, he showed them to me uh, on his phone, and uh, you can see them by eye. So they're like two, three, two millimeters in size, and they're like little planets. Uh, this is awesome. So these are generated from skin cells, human skin cells. We make them into stem cells, and then we, uh, we by adding transcription factors or growth factors, these cells become neuroprogenitor cells. So, uh, and then you can go on uh, to make them into a brain organoid. So there's a, cl a clump of cells in which you have all kinds of brain cells and they work together. And you can maintain these, these, these organoids for up to months. So these, these will help in, in uh, performing studies in 
human brain material, trying to model the disease, the disease uh, understand the biology of the disease, uh, but also for the development of treatment. We have done drug screens, which we find very promising candidate molecules, which we had to test in mice. And sometimes they don't work in mice. The other time they work in mice, as I told previously. And then they don't translate to, to patients. So, but now if you, if you can start with a fibroblast or maybe even in a high throughput screen in these organoids, so then you don't have to go to animals, which is good for the animals. But to me, it sounds like a much more logical model because you go from human skin cells to human brain cells to a patient. So that's something that that's, I have very high hopes on. Um, uh, this makes me very enthusiastic, this, uh, this research project. Well, it, it certainly sounds very exciting and I look forward to hearing more about it in future and maybe we, everyone is out of lockdown. You can start parading these organelles around so people can see them. Uh, organoids even um so i think we'll kind of wrap it up there thank you both again um for your time it's been really great speaking with you today we appreciate it thank you for the uh the opportunity to talk about our work and for your interest yeah thank you james for the opportunity and also for your help with the uh, visual uh, abstract i mean uh, people may not know that but uh, <laughs> you're a great inspirator in this uh, <laughs> in this part <laughs> I think I just I just wanted to um to make a picture of a plant. <laughs> that that just sort of blew me away, you know, when you come come down the list and it's like there's a worm, there's a chimpanzee, there's a mouse, there's a cress. Um certainly if you've listened to this and you'd like to read these papers, then do go to the journal website and search for X-linked adrenal leukodystrophy model systems or ALD MRI surveillance guidelines. And if you'd like to hear more from us, just type JMD podcast into a search engine and be sure to hit subscribe. I hope you'll join us again. Goodbye.